You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down with someone who is illuminating the magical world of antique jewelry. He is the host of the Gem Pursuit podcast and he's selling fine jewels online and in his shop in Dublin. Welcome to the show, Matthew Weldon. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Looking forward to this. Oh my gosh, we're so we've just been sitting here talking for the past 30 minutes just about Ireland and Idaho and I have to commend Matthew because he knew exactly where Idaho was on the map, which is better than some people that live in this country. So a thanks. lot better actually. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean there's a bit of a pretense of that though because I I've seen a couple of um uh, a couple of clips uh, when they ask American people where to locate certain states in Europe. <laughs> And they never know. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, God, if I was asked to locate a couple of states in the US, I wouldn't know. So I have actually deliberately looked at the map mm-hmm. just to just have an because it's good to have an understanding, right? Anyway, so um, but yeah, Idaho sounds beautiful, but uh, for our pre-conversations, a little <laughs> bit dangerous in the wild. Yeah, maybe. it's pretty. Yeah, I mean, Australia is way more dangerous than we are. Mm-hmm. We just have to watch out for grizzly bears, mountain lions. And wolves. Yeah. Apart from the uh, wilderness and uh, wild animals and or weather, it's great. It's great. And people seem lovely. So, yeah, it's, you know, I do have to say for the most part, when like I've traveled to other parts of the U.S. and in Idaho, it is definitely like doors are going to be held open for you. People are going to wave at you if they don't know you. They're going to smile at you. They're just going to make polite conversation. And when I've gone to other places, I do the same thing. And then people think I'm like after their wallet or something. Uh, That's how I felt when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. And then my husband, he lives in a small town in Idaho called Cuna. And they leave their doors unlocked, their cars Mm -hmm. unlocked. They leave them running while they go in the store. And the first time my husband did that, I was like, what in the world are you doing? Mm -hmm. That is a good way for people to steal your stuff. Uh, That's I did not own a house key for my house until I was 16. We just never. Sounds like there's a yeah. Wow, that sounds amazing. (laughs) It sounds like there's a wonderful sense of community there. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's what it 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 sounds like. And um, maybe a bit like Ireland was thirty or forty years ago, sort of. Um, Probably parts of Ireland still like that as well. But certainly around the cities, we definitely uh, lock our doors. That's for sure. So. yeah, I, it's now it's like I lock my car if I'm going into the gas station, or if I'm going in to get my son at daycare, like I always lock my stuff because people are, yeah, now, especially here as we've grown, people are more apt to like break into a car or whatever. There's just more and more of that happening. Mm. But yeah, now I like have to tell my mom, I'm like, did you get like a key for your house? Like, do you lock <laughs> your house and your car and like things like that? She's like, well, I guess most of the time. And I'm like, no, all of the time. Yeah, all the time, mom. And she, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's just, a great indication that that's even a question that needs to be asked. Is like, you do? Do you lock or not? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it would be assumed that you just would. But obviously, yeah. And then she there. looks at me like I'm being intrusive, right? Like it's rude of me to ask, and I'm like, sorry, I guess, mom, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
excuse me for trying to look after your personal safety. Exactly. How dare you, Sam? God forbid. So, and you, I mean, your family has a long history in Ireland, right? Like you guys have been there for a long time. We have been here for, yeah, for a really long time. Um, I mean, going back, I think we can trace it back. I mean, I don't think we've ever left. So, I mean, um, it's, I know on my father's and my mother's side, we can, we can easily trace it back six or seven generations. We're very lucky to be able to, wow. to do that. Um, but even before that, there's no one, I assume it goes back even further on, on the island. Um, I mean, the name, my name, Weldon, probably has like a more of a, a Norman sort of a, a, a sound to it. And the Normans mm-hmm. obviously did come, come to Ireland at one stage. So, um, but, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, we're on this island a long time. And in the, in the jewelry business, uh, for quite a good proportion of that, I would say too. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know if it's even related to, but I know when the, the, at the Edict of Nantes, when the Huguenots kind of, and, uh, sort of, uh, left France, a lot of them were silversmiths and tradespeople, uh, and a lot of them did go to Ireland or they went to the UK, but, um, I don't know if that's possibly, um, the origin of it in that, you know, we were into the silver smithing and silver trade. Uh, in addition to the jewelry business, uh, actually originally probably silver smithing and possibly with the name and uh, that type of a trade, there's possibly a connection, but, you know, it's too yeah. far back to tell. And that's what I was doing when I was kind of doing some research on you. I was like, okay. Cause I was like, how does somebody at like my age go have this level of knowledge and the ability to understand not only jewelry, but antique jewelry. I was like, where is this coming from? And then I was like, Oh shit. It's like lineage. That's been just like passed on through osmosis your entire life. Yeah. I mean, I've um, like, I, even when I was young, I distinctly remember being in the shop. um, You know, just if, there was no one to mind me or whatever like that. You just go into work and sit in the back. Mm-hmm. And I very clear messages of being told, you know, make sure you sit in the back. You don't want to see you. <laughs> so, but, uh, but you'd pick up, you know, you just pick up things and that the way to, you know, run a shop and the way to have a good, you know, client service and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that, that definitely, I picked that up when I was younger, but like, I'm so lucky that my mom and my dad were both in the business for a long time. Um, and, you know, they could tell you something in, you know, two sentences, which might might take people years to learn yeah. and loads of financial mistakes to learn, but they'll just tell you in two seconds, uh, you know, you know, look out for this or don't do that. And, you know, instead of learning by, uh, you know, <laughs> well, although learning by mistakes is not a bad thing necessarily, but um, <laughs> oh, so lucky. And my brothers are in it and my sister as well are all in the business. So it's, uh, I'm absolutely blessed by the knowledge that I can draw on. Yeah. Um, and that's actually, and even their knowledge is built on knowledge from previous generations. Mm-hmm. Even they've got a head start, you know, mm-hmm. to someone who would come into this trade cold. Right. Uh, so, like, because I totally agree with you, Sam. Like, if you if you came into this, if you decided one day, you know, love to be an antique jewelry dealer, like it'd be pretty daunting, mm-hmm. and I think it'd be very difficult to be honest to do it. It's totally doable. But you have to definitely have a real passion and a bit of a flair for it. I'd say. Yeah. And well, it, just the amount of history. 
I mean, because as the further you go back, the more you start to dip into more symbolism and more, mm -hmm. you know, the areas of where things were either mined or made or smelted, you know, and you start to, and the difference I'm sure between like a Georgian or a Victorian piece of jewelry can be vast in like mostly like materials and production, right? Like it would just be, but it to probably look at those two pieces to the layman's eyes, you would just be like, oh, they're both this era, right? Yeah. And like that is um, like one of the, obviously when you're looking at different jewelry, identifying the era is fundamental and there's ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, it can get really, really challenging and complex. But I mean, Georgian jewellery, you know, from circa kind of 1820 and before for about 100 years, maybe before that, is really, really rare. And uh, totally out of fashion there, maybe maybe 20 years ago. Um, no, I wasn't in the business 20 years ago, but I'm, from what people have told me, like you could buy Georgian jewellery really inexpensively. Then it just got really popular um, and I say George and Julie, what normally is, is like, um, can be kind of rose cut diamonds, which are really simply faceted, mm. not like the modern stones you'll see today. It'll be quite ornamental jewelry. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, when you think of the, the aristocratic, uh, social scene back then, there was lots of balls and who was going to which dinner mm -hmm. and whatever would have been a big thing. And they wore this extravagant jewelry. Um, to these events but it's actually Georgian jewelry it's actually rarer than Roman jewelry oh wow so, yeah so you'll find more easily find Roman jewelry than you will Georgian jewelry and um, main reason being I suppose that Georgian is a smaller period of time mm -hmm. um, it was only these bourgeoisie mm. aristocratic people who would have had jewelry in the Georgian time and um, and then there was really, really cheap jewelry, but there's no like middle market. The, the beauty of Victorian jewelry, which is from circa 1830 to about 1900, and that doesn't coincide exactly with the dates mm -hmm. of Queen Victoria, but Georgian, uh, but Victorian style is mm -hmm. kind of from that period. Yeah. Um, is that there was a middle class. So they made lo lots of, you know, very nice jewelry. Not stuff that was so mega that nobody could buy it, mm -hmm. um, but very nice jewellery um, that, you know, the growing kind of merchant classes and industrial classes could could actually buy it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, identifying it is really tricky. And to give you one example, I had a ring there recently, which looked Georgian, had mm -hmm. rose cut diamonds, silver collet, and the collet is the piece of the ring that holds the, the diamond um, like the crown of the ring, say, mm -hmm. and then it had a gold band. And I was looking at that ring and say, that ring looks Georgian. And uh, I was like, yeah, it looks it's great. Just after finding Georgian jewelry, which is really red hot now. Everyone mm. loves Georgian jewelry now. And uh, my dad came up and looked at it and goes, yeah, he goes, that is a, <laughs> he goes, that is a Dutch Victorian reproduction of a Georgian style. What? And yeah, once you've seen these, it's, yeah. it's they did the, they did this in Holland about the kind of 1890s, 1900. They made Georgian style. It was like a trend. Um, and once you've seen them, you're like, oh yeah, I know that's definitely. Mm -hmm. I kind of looked and thought it didn't look 200 years old. It's mm -hmm. like, mm. it was so fresh. But yeah, it was Victorian, but repro, wow. uh, what they call in the trade, reproduction, Victorian style. So, uh, and again, while you can build on, so if if I didn't have someone to, He's obviously seen it before. Yeah. You wouldn't know unless you've seen it. 
I would have just thought, yeah, that's Georgian. And, you know, I could have uh, made a mistake and either sold it as such or had someone say to me, you know what, that's actually not right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's an example of, of just building on the knowledge that you have and, yeah, blessed to have it. So Well, and speaking of your dad, he is quite renowned in Ireland, isn't he? Is like a like I've seen his name in like auction appraisals and like they're like, hey, this stuff was certified by is it is your dad's name Jimmy? Is that what his name is? Jimmy. Jimmy is my dad. Okay. Yeah. Jimmy Weldon. Yeah. So and my and, granddad too, so I know that might be yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's where I was getting the confusion. I was like, I know there's a yeah. Jimmy in there. So he's yeah. pretty well acclaimed. Is your mom as well, like as the same kind of statuette as your father? And like people are like, Hey, will you look at this? And if they say it's this, they're probably correct. Yeah. Uh, my mom, my, my dad is an expert on antique Irish silver. Like, yeah, so he has been um, the master warden of the Company of Goldsmiths of Dublin, which are the the Company of Goldsmiths are in charge of the assay office, which is the place where they hallmark the jewelry. Oh my gosh! So, Just yeah, kind so of like a big you, deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Um, it's, I don't know if it's a big deal. It's definitely a lot of work from, from talking yeah. to him, but it's uh, it's such an old association. It's not even a company. It's not like an LLC or a limited company. It's a it's made. It's a it's a charter. It's made by charter, and wow. there's no directors. There's wardens, and the wardens are in charge of the governance, and obviously they hire people to run it. Um, it's a really, you know, they, they have a dinner once a year and there's like, you know, they all wear their gold chains and so, like, it's, <laughs> it's really cool. It's, uh, there's like nods and, and bows and things. I don't know what's the, oh, wow. the half of the time, but, but it's, it's, it is one of the oldest, it's about, I think it's 350 years old, this charter. Um, so very old association and one of the only remaining, uh, guilds in Ireland, like, you know, there would have been like the guild of, uh, weavers or the mm-hmm. guild of you know uh um what they call it tanners or you know all the different trades would have their guild but this one is actually still active and going and it's it's uh it's it's pretty cool but yeah in, in terms of irish silver he would be absolutely recognized as the if you wanted an appraisal he his one would be wow. the one you'd want to get um and there's a few other people who who are you know there's um John, a gentleman called John Bone, Thomas Sinstaden, and there's a couple of other ones. Wow. But uh, if there's something about Irish silver, uh, <laughs> he knows it basically. You know, so and my mom, she was never that much into the uh, how would I say like the creative knowledge side of the business. She's very mm-hmm. like um, very into just the running the business, dead pragmatic, like dead pragmatic, <laughs> and. <laughs> and um, she, you know, I can't even give examples of how many times she, the famous phrase is she's like, do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, never yeah, heard, she, I've never heard that at all. I was going to say, I think I say that often. <laughs> Jill's yeah. my mom and your mom are the right. same. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a phrase, is it Jill? Yes, I do. <laughs> I use it. I'm always, she says, and I'm like, ooh, and then I'm think like, that's a good idea right now. <laughs> and then I'm like, oops, nope, I don't. Nope. Yeah, yeah. Not if you're that asking me. For. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's maybe, you know, a good team, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it really worked. Well. It's been <laughs> working for a while, so. Yeah, I would get us into yeah. a lot of pickles if I didn't have Jill to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pump the brakes. Yeah, so that's, and that's, that's, uh, that's what, and when I work in the shop and the people who work with us, I always try to get people who are like compliment each mm-hmm. other, you know, so mm-hmm. um, it's a bit of a basket case in there, though, because we have uh, myself, I'm obviously Irish, we have 
Elisa's Australian, <laughs> Julia is uh, Italian, and uh, Sarah is Irish as well, and Darcy is Irish. So there's a good mix. So <laughs> you're just covering um, all your bases. So you're like everybody, get in on this. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it's a, it's like a UN convention. I was gonna say, but yeah, but um, but no, that that's uh, that is Jimmy. In in terms of, I mean, in, in the in the trade today, you know. But I mean, he's he has learned it obviously from his dad, who was into silver and jewelry, and his his dad like was my grandfather. They had a pawnbrokers, which would be on. Um, O'Connell Street in Dublin today, which is a big shopping street. It was called Sackville Street when he was on it. Um, and he was a pawnbroker there for a long time. And then, and then his dad uh, was a jeweler as well. And then his dad was a traveling salesman. Um, where with this, I don't know, this type of person, they don't really exist anymore, but mm-hmm. they'd go around town to town. And if someone wanted, like, I don't know, like a leather jacket or like a dress or like a like a, a piece of jewelry. It could be anything. This mm-hmm. person was just, would be a, the salesperson in the town mm-hmm. and they could, they could sell anything. So, and that's kind of as far back as we know, I think, to be honest. So we have something similar to, I guess that would go as far back as that, where it was a company that was generally selling everything, which was the Sears and Roebuck company. And there was a catalog that would, what's your light doing? Is it turning off? I oh, know that's, <laughs> no, that's not my light. We can see my, it's i uh, I'm actually here to, there's a big computer in front of me oh, and uh, every oh. so often it goes on to sleep. Oh, okay. it's, a big okay. blue, it's like a big blue screen. Yeah. I was so. like, are you being abducted? Do we need to call somebody? What's an important, what's Ireland's 911? Uh, is it 999 or what is it? I don't know. It's nine. I think, I think 911, 999 it is actually okay. sound. But, uh, no, I'm grand. No, no. We're good. We're, okay. Okay. Good. I just blink twice. If you're being abducted, we'll help you out. Um, I could see that. I could see that. It was just turning like blue and then white and then blue. And I was like, what? Are you in trouble from the law? I know. I'm like, did the police? (laughs) But we had had something similar. It was the Sears Roebuck Company where there was a catalog that would go out. And the catalog had everything from entire houses, kit houses that you could buy, to jewelry, to animal feed, to candles, to housewares, to baptismal gowns. Like literally, they were huge. And you would get one at the beginning of the year and you would go through it and like order from it all year long. And that stuff would come by rail to the town you were in and be offloaded and you'd go pick up your Sears stuff. And the catalog Sears is went bankrupt a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think there's only a couple operating stores in the U.S. anymore. But it was like growing up, there was still a catalog that you would get at Christmas time and you would sit and go through it and it would have literally everything in it. Everything. It was truly an American company in the aspect of like it was like the first version of Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So very similar awesome. to that traveling. That sounds basically the same. Mm-hmm. And Sears were they they have the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. Is it is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the tallest buildings in the US mm-hmm. and it's um it, I don't think it's called a Sears Tower anymore actually. But um but yeah, it's it's this very very tall building and mm-hmm. uh, I remember I had a book growing up with the tallest building in the world and it was the Sears Tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually didn't even know it was a, a company really, uh, just <laughs> that it had a big tower. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's good. Okay. And the, but the catalog today that you can't get it, can you? No, uh, I don't uh, think so. I don't think so anymore. It's just started getting yeah. smaller and smaller as the years went on. Like, I don't think I've seen a full yeah. size catalog since I was a kid. So 20 years yeah. or more. Yeah. But you find them sometimes. They're highly collectible, the older ones, um, if you can find them mm-hmm. from. 
even like the 1800s and things like that. They're super, wow. super collectible. But yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting company growing up. And that's like my introduction to collecting also came from my family. Like it was something we always did. And my um, grandparents spent a large amount of time in England when my grandfather was in the service. So that was like my first introduction to antiques was English based stuff, right? That they brought home. And that's kind of where my whole like rabbit hole of being really into vintage and antiques started was like my grandfather always encouraged me to like just figure it out like see what it's about see what you can learn about it and then go from there and so i i totally understand that like sitting in the back of the shop and just kind of watching everything happen around you and picking things up that way because that's how like Mm. in my trade my aunt does hair and i would go after i babysat her kids i would go into work with her the next day and spend the whole day at the salon watching the salon work and like answering phones or dusting, like doing all like the petty stuff that they didn't want to do that I now understand that they didn't want to do. And, but you learn, you learn so much from just watching other things happen. And I wanted to bring up, uh, I wanted to hear this story, particularly for you, which was kind of your, I would say like your antique light bulb moment was when you were in Miami at an antique show. Yes. So God, this is a, there's a, there's a few parts of that trip that stick in my mind, but there's there's one in particular. Um, it was the Miami every year has a, a really really big antique jewelry show. Um, mm. I think it's it might have even split into two shows now. Maybe it's oh, so big, cool. but it's every January. Um, and funny when you look through the, the eyes of a child, it's completely different to the when you get a bit older. And the, I know I now know that a lot of the European antiques dealers love doing this show because they get to go to Miami in January. Right. Like it's, yeah. It's, this is uh, a perfect time whereas, to go. Yeah. It's like, it's very important to trade, but it's in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, when I remember when I went there and I was trying to figure out the year when I was getting ready um, to talk to you guys today, because I was just trying to see. And all I, I don't have the exact year because all I know, I was wearing a France 1998 t-shirt. The soccer world cup was in France in 1998. So it must have been January 1999. So anyway. Oh, right. Um, I'm glad you had that so marker that, for that yourself it. to be like, when was that? <laughs> yeah. And like, and like, like, like you heard growing up as well, you just kind of figure it out. So I was looking <laughs> at the photos. I was like, oh, figure it out. So, um, so anyway, th- there's this really, really big antiques show, um, especially for jewelry. If you're in the antique jewelry world, like everyone knows about this show. People from all over go to it. Um, you'll get buyers and sellers from Europe, the U.S., uh, China, Russia, you know, Japan, wow. literally everywhere, all the, especially all the big markets for antique jewelry. And there is actually a lot of antique jewelry that is, you know, like for example, Southeast Asia has a lot of antique jewelry, but it wouldn't be European or US styles mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't see that. Um, but so I'm just saying there is antique jewelry in lots of other places, but this is the ones that we'd see. Um, and I remember I got, I remember I got to the, I remember I got to the, this hall that it was in and I was standing in the, in the lobby. And I mean, as a child, as a 10 year old or whatever, in the US, I've seen a lot of, you know, things are done on a bigger scale there than they would be in Ireland, right? Just be pure, um, you know, the amount of people, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember queuing up outside. Everyone was like kind of chatting and sort of they were like talking to each other, swapping like they're look because the, the dealers before they even get into the hall are trading stuff out the front. I just was thinking to myself, what is going on in this hall here? <laughs> there was a real, bu- there was a real buzz about the place. 
And uh, I also remember I got the the Pokemon Yellow game for the oh. for the Game Boy, and I was I, I would I, this was huge because they only had the red and the blue, and mm-hmm. I, had, I got the yellow one, and this was this was massive news. So, um, so I don't know at the time if I was more interested in the antiques or the Pokemon game, but um, that's but a pretty fair toss up. The, to really, it's yeah. a fair toss up. Yeah. Then it was. Mm-hmm. Now I, I, <laughs> I think I know which one I go with. But, um, but then I remember going into the hall and just the sheer size of it. Um, and I would have always seen. I was there with my mom and dad. I would have always seen them on the on. They were selling in the shop, and the first time I've seen them trying to buy off people, and it was an interesting change of dynamic, you know. So, yeah. um, and that that stuck in my head. Them trying to negotiate and. I was like, God, my dad is so, you know, he's so being so polite and friendly. He's not as blunt <laughs> as he normally is. So, and it's weird, those me- memories that stick yeah. with you. Um, and that was my first real memory of that, like what I would call uh, like the the buzz or the, the w- when you're looking for antiques, jewelry or, or, or any antiques, they call it like the hunt, where you're mm-hmm. looking for the really, really cool mm-hmm. things. And there's a buzz around that. Like when the fair opens, everyone's like buzzing to go through. You, they could be, they could be 105 or they could be, they'll find the energy once the fair opens. And that buzz, that, that like atmosphere in that room, I can even like remember the carpet and like the, like there was a lot of different people from different ethnicities. And as an Irish, I haven't seen it. Just the whole mm-hmm. thing was so cool. And I was like, uh, that buzz just stuck with me. And um, I've been back to that Miami fair a few times since and I loved it every time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that 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 definitely was my kind of the first distinct moment that I remember. Because I have memories being in the shop. I can't really pinpoint them uh, at any particular time. But this is like a definitive moment, January nineteen ninety nine. That was that was my first real memory. So well, and to touch on those two things that you say, right? The difference between being in like either your own parents' house or your own parents' collection or your own parents' business, right? You kind of have this understanding that everybody else's is probably just like this, right? There's nothing that singularly Mm. sticks out to you in a way until you experience something different. And I think that's the switch that happens for people that either collect or buy or sell antiques and vintage is it's one, it's the hunt, but it's the excitement of maybe being able to find something that either somebody else doesn't know what they have and you know, mm. and it's that like that hit that you get when you do find something that you collect and you see it in the wild for a really killer price. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, here we go. And then you just kind of constantly chasing that. And then you meet up with other people that like antiques and vintage and they do the same thing. Right. And it just creates this spiral of, I don't know, con- I don't I don't know that I've ever met a collector that's like pleased with the what's at their collection at right like they're constantly like well i'm still looking for this or i'm looking for that or i'm you know that is such a great analogy sam i really think that is brilliant that's like <laughs> in you. the wild like the the yes exactly that you're like they're just out there they're they're there they're somewhere they're in a car boot sale they're in a <laughs> they're in a they're in a small shop in the mm-hmm. corner upside down and mm-hmm. up uh, hidden by something and you you're uh, you're you're not your job but you're passion as a collector mm-hmm. or as a as a dealer is looking for those things where other people mightn't see like you know something special mm-hmm. you could say god i've seen something like that before 
you take it out and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, yeah, the you know the marks and the the mm-hmm. way it's made maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you you kind of take that little gamble and you go for it, and then when you have time to, and you get it home and there's always that moment you go look at it and you get home and you can carefully analyze it mm-hmm. and then you say yes, that's actually dead right. That is a great feeling. It's like a, it is like a, and I suppose it's a bit like I don't know if you play golf or not, but it's like. You know, if you hit one really good shot, you spend mm-hmm. the rest of your life trying to replicate that shot. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly uh, it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is that is it. I mean, as a dealer, it's, it's different to a collector. I mean, a dealer is basically a collector who then sells their goods for like a living. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what they do. Um, so there's all like the organizational side, running the business side of things. But fundamentally, you're looking for the same things. I mean... And your base, base you, where you create value for people is that you're doing it all day, every day, mm-hmm. and that you can spot those things or have access to them in a more beneficial way that you can even sell them and get to these people at a better price. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, but I love that analogy, in the wild. Mm-hmm. Yes, jewelry is just in the wild and we have to find just capture yeah. it. Well, yeah. then there's yeah. an art Cap- to like when you <laughs> find that piece, right? And you're like, I can't show how excited I am to find this or I'm going to lose out on this price because other people are going to see that I'm like enamored and kind of starting to lose my mm. mind. So you cut, you just have to like quell that. Yes. I have to tell her like, she'll get this look and I'll be like, you need to calm down. My right eyes now. get really big when I'm like, I was like we're just going to go out and buy it real quick. And then you can have your little party mm-hmm. in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mask gotta... wearing has been really helpful for me in like having a little bit more of a poker face. That's yeah, I don't. I'll find things in the wild and I'll just put it in my bag. I don't say anything, nothing. And then Sam and I will go out to the car. She's like, what'd you get? And I'll pull something out and she'll be like, where'd you find that? Like it didn't even react. You didn't even like say anything. Nothing and I was happened. like, I know because I wanted to make sure I got it for the price that was on the like, I want to be as cool as a cucumber <laughs> as Jill is because I'm it not. It comes with age, darling. Okay. It comes okay. with age. Oh, Ten more years. Sam like, Sam's probably like, how much is it? 300. I'll give you four. <laughs> really? I'm like, no, that's not enough. I really, this is fantastic. Yeah. I just, yeah. and my brain, I, my brain just works in this way where I just hold on to just endless amounts of useless information. <laughs> and if somebody like brings up one ounce of it, I'm like, oh, do you want to know all about it? Because I'm just going to tell you all about it. It's a problem. Uh, <laughs> I think we have the same, as you mentioned, I think we have the same way of, mm-hmm. of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't know anything useful, but um, <laughs> You know, in, interesting trivia mm-hmm. and you know hey. antique information. Well, that is useful, but um, yeah, that is that is. Um, I suppose when you're buying and stuff. I mean, really, I think most when you're buying most things, most dealers don't. They kind of know what they want for it anyway. If you don't offer that, they probably won't sell it. But mm-hmm. um, but that said, I was at actually I was in Italy uh, on uh, a few days ago uh, last week at an antiques fair in Parma, which is uh, a really enormous antiques fair. There's, we, so we were in, we, I went on Thursday and there was a, we spent the whole Thursday in the first hall. And this is how, I don't know if it's that we were so tired from wow. the early flight or whatever, but we were there for the whole day Thursday and looking through this whole hall and I got, I said, geez, we've nearly got this cover now. We'll finish it off tomorrow. So then on, on Friday morning, we went around again and like, yeah, I think that's it now. Yeah, that's it. Most, and we said to someone, yeah, I think we're going to, you know, we, our flight wasn't to the evening. I said, I think we might go to Milan to see if we can find some things. It's about a two hour drive because we had 10 hours before the flight. They're like, oh, really? You've been through all the other four halls? And I was like, <laughs> what? Oh, God. Oh. And so we went, we were then, 
rushing through with the other four <laughs> halls. But I mean, there was so many antiques there. And about the the talking about, you know, you don't look too, you know, too keen if someone has something. I really, I think nine times of times it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. the one thing I did notice is the furniture at this show, Parm Antique show, is uh, none of it had prices on. So I don't know if it was. Uh, if it was, you know, they'd take one look at you and kind of go, oh, yeah, for you. <laughs> or oh, I don't know. But um, I hate that. But the f- I hate when there's Yeah, so prices. do I. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the price is the price you can negotiate off that. But mm-hmm. it's, um, I mean, sorry, there could have been maybe that, you know, because what does, ha- what happens at those fairs is that they, you know, especially the furniture de- dealers, they have, they have one stand. If they sell two or three things, they have to get in new stuff. Mm-hmm. And they usually have a they usually find they have a huge van outside, so they sell uh, a table to get another table in. Um, which is the beauty about jewelry from a from a even from a collector point of view, you know, you can have one tray and you can see your whole collection. Mm-hmm. Um it's very, it's very easy in that sense because they're they're quite small physically. So mm-hmm. um so yeah, pretty cool. Um I definitely would recommend anyone's interested in antiques, that fair in Parma. There was a good US contingent at it. Um, not so many, I think probably still because of the travel restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Russian buyers, Chinese buyers, there was everyone there. It's pretty well known too. It also blows my American mind that like people are just like, yeah, we're just going to pop over to Italy for just a couple <laughs> days. We're just going to come on home. Like the thought of flying to another country, like I got two that I could like make it to in a day. We got Mexico and Canada, but like to leave, <laughs> to go across the pond, to go antiquing sounds like i was probably dead and it was like heaven or something because <laughs> i just couldn't even imagine just and that's well and that's the thing too where you live the part of the world that you're from like lots of people spend their holidays going to other countries because everybody's so close together you really you can do that that just blows my it's, mind <laughs> i i mean yeah it's it's mad so and at least who works for me moved to europe specifically for that reason is that you know, a two-hour flight from Dublin and you could be in Italy, France, Spain, Germany, Portugal, you know, Poland, wherever you want to go. Um, but I suppose the thing about it is geographically, it's it's not that far. Like mm-hmm. it's like from Idaho to Miami is, if we if the distance from Idaho, Idaho to Miami, I'm sure is the same as going from probably Dublin to, you know, the far side of the Ukraine, which is yeah. you know, mi- the Middle East almost. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think, I think from I think from Dublin to Israel is like a four-hour flight or something like that. So yeah. four and a half hours. Let's maybe. see. A so, four-hour flight would get us like to Houston. Yeah. Texas. To Texas. Texas. Uh-huh. All right. So oh, yeah, yeah, it's like so totally it's, the it's same. It's, it's the same. <laughs> if you were to drive from Idaho to Florida, it would probably be three and a half days of driving. Right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah it's... I, we'd be in Turkey. So <laughs> yeah. I just. Yeah. But. But I, it is it is amazing. But the thing about Europe, I suppose, in comparison to the US, is that the I think the cultures are quite different. In that, there's they're all different languages. Mm-hmm. Some places have different currencies. Um, like you can really you could if you fly to the south of Italy, it is like you're you might as well be in uh, I was going to say Mars, right? But <laughs> it's um, you know, and I you know I said an Italian who works with me, but the culturally it's so different like yeah. really is and i don't know if because the us has the same language and the same 
um, government and stuff. I don't know if it's more uniform. I don't. I don't know. It probably. It, it obviously can't be because. Uh, well, it's so yeah. big. Well, and there's so there's two questions. I will follow up with an answer and then I'll ask you my question. Um, because I want to know, like, when you're traveling and you're dealing in that many currencies, like, does your brain just start to remember that exchange rate? Or do you just thank God for smartphones? And you're like, is this really a good deal? Or is it in a different currency? Um, it depends. Most currencies are, have similar. It's like the big one is the pound sterling mm-hmm. in the UK. We'd buy a bit in, in the UK. So, uh, which, although it's no longer part of the European Union now, makes it a bit more tricky because you have to import stuff now. Um, oh, annoying. Whereas before, whereas before you could, the euro, it was like, it was bought in the same market, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. um, but, so yeah, that was like, the pound sterling was like a bit more expensive than a euro. So, one pound sterling would be one euro 20 cent or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So if it was a thousand pounds, it'd be 1200 euro or something like that. So, oh, that makes sense. Um, if you go to Scandinavia, like Sweden and Denmark, their currencies are totally different. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's like 10 to one or 12 to one. So, oh. yeah, when you I, when you actually pay it and they, you get the exchange rate that you really get, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. The way I do it though is when you're there, you just kind of you get into like you know sterling mode, uh-huh. or like kroner is the currency they have in, in Sweden. You just kind of set that in your head, and you kind of get a base mark. Mm. And you're like, oh, you know, five hundred kroner is X, so I kind of want to be looking in this area. Um, but oh, it, it definitely makes it more challenging for sure. Yeah. So. And then to answer your question about cultural differences within the United mm. States, I would say drastically north to south, like. Even right. state to state, there are different cultural interpretations of different things that you do, different things that you say. Oh, that, yeah. like, if I say, like, the biggest one, for instance, is if you say, bless your heart in the South, you're basically telling somebody that they're an idiot. Like, you're so stupid. Like, bless your heart, <laughs> you sweet, darling angel. Yeah, where if you yeah. say it where we live, it's the genuine, like, the the actual translation of bless your heart, like, oh, you poor thing. Unless like, you have Southern grandparents and then you get right. to use it. And so I have had some clients from the South and they will say something sad and I'll go, oh, bless your heart. And then I wait, no, not, no, I'm not <laughs> saying that to you like that. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely like each corner of the country, I would say, whether it's cultural significance or different um, ethnicities that make up a majority of that area, you know, like whatever mm. culture is the dense population it's gonna shift like wherever you're going just like where living where i am in this part of idaho like you just wave at people and you do those things where in a you know different part of the country that would be like not a great thing to do there'd yeah. be people coming with like white coats for being so friendly sort mm-hmm. of thing so yeah, what's wrong with that lady yeah yeah like yeah. i have because <laughs> both my husband and my kids technically have been raised in like smaller communities mm-hmm. and they don't know when we go sure. to a big city like, my husband is very bad at, like, if somebody's like, hey, guy, cool mm. glasses, can I see them? And he'll give them to him, and yeah. then they'll walk away. And I'm like, no, babe, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, we're in a big city. That's, like, <laughs> they're trying to steal things from you. And he's like, well, you seem like a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> you don't realize that unless you yeah. live somewhere else. Or, like, I yeah. traveled a lot for, I was an educator at a company. So sure. I traveled a lot and was in a lot of large cities in the U.S. And that's where you really start to realize, like, Okay, like if you're moving through the airport, if you're moving through somewhere by yourself, like you got to be aware of stuff, you got to keep your shit by you, like just a different mentality mm-hmm. than growing up at a place where nobody locks their doors. Yeah. So I would say yeah, yeah the cultural difference that way 
is um is notable but we're lucky to live where we live we have a um it's called the idaho national laboratory and it's a nuclear reactor facility and it's all sorts of stuff but it brings in a really diverse population of just the staff that's out there and so that helps our community in a way of like opening up to more different things and cultures and diversity trainings and things like that so awesome yeah yeah so i to answer that question yes i would say yes <laughs> in the longest way possible the, the easy I would say answer yes. is yes so <laughs> no I, yeah you have to you have to you have to yeah a, a yes i much preferred the full answer that yes you. obviously got there but uh, you know yeah <laughs> you're right some people will just look at me and i'm like i know you wanted something short but my brain doesn't see and my i'm used to it because my husband is the same mm-hmm. way he um he will give me the long word i'm like i honestly just wanted a yes or no mm-hmm. answer to mm-hmm. this question i just want to know did you want chicken yes or no yes only if it's teriyaki <laughs> so there was one yeah. particular i guess i have so many other questions we're just gonna have to have you back sure. at some point um yeah sure. so when did like your like growing up with jewelry and then deciding to go into the business was that just like your natural next step was to like I'm gonna have my own shop? Well, um, that's like any journey like that. It's it's kind of it's not like a straight road. It was mm-hmm. full of like meanders. But I actually uh, what I went to uh, university and did um, I did marketing in university, which was which was. In Heinz, it wasn't my first choice at all. I think my first choice was actually history. Um, but then I ended up, the way the college works here is you, you have to get a certain amount of points and then you, then you get an offer and you have to take it. And then this was my first offer and I just took it. Um, and so that was marketing. And then when I finished that, I did, uh, what I did, I worked, I got a, like a, a placement in a, a phone company in Jamaica, believe it or not. And uh yeah, that was an experience. <laughs> um, but uh, that was God. I could write a book about that. One, but the um, when when I was in Jamaica, it was, Di- it was a company called DigiCell. Um, and when I was there, the the financial controller, director of the company, who actually uh, passed away since. His name's Colin Dells, a very nice gentleman. But you know, he said, "You know what? What's he, what are you thinking of doing after this?" And I said, "Oh, no, really." To be honest. And he was like, well, you could think about being an accountant. And, uh, you know, it's great. If you want to get into the business world, accountancy is a great thing because, you know, you really understand the nuts and bolts of, you know, how businesses operate. So I thought, so I, I would be pretty, uh, uh, like my mother, pretty pragmatic. I was like, okay, well, then I just do it. Like, mm. that's what this guy said. Sounds good. I'll just do it. So I got home and uh, got a, managed to get an interview with um, KPMG or an accountancy practice. And they, uh, managed to get in there somehow because I'd no accountancy qualifications whatsoever. So, um, but they, they're really great. They don't really, they kind of look at the, they look at you, whether they think you'll be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And then if they think you're able to do it, they'll train you. So that's the way they, they did that. And um, so, yeah, I did that for four years. And then like, I was never, um, I was a, like a good accountant, absolutely fine. But um, I was never going to be fantastic at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I was, you know, sitting down a lot. I prefer to be like moving around more. Um, I was a whiz at Excel by the end of it. Nice like, job. I mean, <laughs> you want V lookups, pivot tables. I'm your man, right? But, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, and actually, funny, I did a, a talk there, and this is I might mention this here. I did a talk to you today, and someone said, "Yeah, what was your career before you joined?" I was like, "Oh, yeah, I was like an accountant." I'm and glad you're like, bringing right. this up because it made me laugh. 
so hard. So I'm glad you're telling this story. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. This is this is like popular culture, which mm-hmm. obviously as an antique dealer, I must not be up to date with it. But so I was like, yeah, I was I was an accountant. They're, they started like winking at me, like accountant, <laughs> got it. I was like, I was like, okay. They're like, <laughs> I was like, since when is that I, like bagging people? Since, yeah. So since when, yeah, since when is that like a wink, wink, yeah. nudge, nudge <laughs> moment? Normally it's people just like turn around and walk away. It's like accountant, oh God, another one. So anyway, so it turned out that if it's code for today. I don't know if you know this, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a website called OnlyFans, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, uh, interesting website i i can truthfully say i've never been on it it is uh yeah it's an adult content website and uh to get around it's like facebook but for nudes like to put it in the most layman terms but you pay a subscription and i think where the accountant term came from was people getting around tiktok community guidelines because you can't mention it by its name so So they picked accountant yeah like, well, I suppose I, no one usually asks more questions after that. So, right. um, you know, yeah. your account is okay. That's the end of it usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so so yeah, that that was that moment. I was like, no, no, I'm actually an accountant. Like in the traditional, like, show me your, you know, your, yeah. your I want to see your receipts for the year, and I'll put them. <laughs> show into, me like, your spreadsheets. You're like, I like yeah. numbers, yeah. numbers only. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not yeah. only fans, numbers only. Yeah. This is the significance. Numbers only. Yeah. Numbers only. <laughs> so I'm trying to roll today. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We we do what we can. I try my best. Uh, I rehearse yeah. all my jokes. I'm like, what can I say? No, that's not. I wish that's how <laughs> well, it Well, it flows so naturally. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, so I was, I'm glad you told that story because huh. I was at work reading your email that you sent back and I started laughing so hard. My coworker, who does not watch TikTok, looks at me and she's like, what's funny? And I'm like, you're not going to get it. And she was like, I'll just explain it. I explained it in deadpan. Like she was like, that's not funny at all. And then my other two coworkers that watch the same amount of TikTok that I do, I went in and I said, this person we're interviewing, I said, he is an actual accountant. And they both started laughing because I said, he's from TikTok, blah, blah, blah. I said, he's an actual accountant. He had made the mistake of saying he was an accountant. And they both were in stitches just like I was. So the joke was appreciated. Well, I'm glad you yes. um, all have educated me on that. That's what we're here for, Jill. You thought it was. A I've got to keep up antiques. with the kids too, you know. It's to keep you cool. <laughs> oh no, this is like this is leading edge popular cult- culture, Jill. I wouldn't worry about that. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, but um, yeah. So I finished that accountancy. Tra- I fully qualified, and then uh, then I went and worked with uh, went and joined my dad's shop, which my brother works there as well. Uh, and but going back to, I remember when I was much younger, and I was saying, my dad said to me one time, he said. Uh, now, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, I said, oh, you know, I want to be a footballer and I want to, <laughs> you know, I don't know, be, I, God knows what, fireman, who knows, you know, the things that yeah. kids say. And he goes, did you ever think about being an antique stealer? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Dad. he's grooming me now. <laughs> but uh, in hindsight, he was, uh, he probably always, and what I think, what I love about people who are older than us and he's uh, the man's in his 70s now is that they're they're much more patient with things mm-hmm. you know he didn't have to get a yes then he just kind of had to so um but yeah so i joined his shop and um and my dad and my brother ran that shop i worked there for about two years or so and um then i actually left i moved to spain for six months 
Uh, because I knew I wanted to set up my own shop. And I just thought to myself, this is going to be a whole lot of work. I better take a very long holiday before it starts. Smart. Um, yeah, and it was great. Learn, Sp- and learn Spanish. And uh, I have a pretty good aptitude for languages. Um, although my uh, French teacher mightn't agree with that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so I learned French school. But then, uh, so I moved to Spain. And then, because I had a brother who lived there as well. And um, then came back in uh, in the summer of 2017 I think yeah 2017 and then this shop that I'm in now this this shop called Courtville um was was the the owner wanted to sell basically she wasn't very well and she kind of wanted just to she basically still wanted to work which is definitely something you'll see in the antiques with the, the owners get to a certain mm-hmm. point they de- and they want to still work and like this is their collector this mm-hmm. they want to find these these uh these sleepers, let's call them sleepers that, you know, are things that other people don't see that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and she still wanted that side of it. Um, that hit, if you want to call it that. But she didn't want the hassle of running a shop. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of like paperwork and accounts, which funny enough, uh, <laughs> thankfully, that is a, not a strong point of mine, maybe. But <laughs> the, um, so they, she wanted to get rid of all that, keep the good stuff, get rid of all the other stuff. So she wanted to sell. And we did some sort of a deal with her and the funny thing is, it was due to be signed in October. And uh, anyway, it actually fell through the first time. Um, someone in their family wanted to take it on, oh, uh, no. who had never never been in the business. Um, and look, I basically think after a few months, it just didn't work out for them. So it was back on the table then. Uh, and then the deal went through in the following March. And that's how I ended up in Courtville. And what I'd like to say as well is that Courtville, actually the name of the house where the founder was from in 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 ireland in the midlands in ireland and the lady who actually set it up um she actually only passed away there recently uh, a couple of days ago she was at a she was 102 and wow. uh she she said of courtville I, she was trading basically from the 40s more or less um and she had a shop she set up the shop that i'm in now in 1980 um but an incredible woman and i've she was, her niece interviewed her there about maybe 18 or 20 months ago, just before the first COVID death wow. thing happened. And uh, I heard bits of that interview and, you know, she said things like, they said, what's, you know, her niece said to her, what's the most important thing about the business? She said, uh, first of all, she said, you have to be honest and integrity is fundamental um, which I think is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have that, you don't have anything else, basically. Um, and then she said, you always have to be learning. Always be learning. Learn something small every day. And I said, and that is so true. Mm. You have to increase your knowledge and um, every day. And if you pick up something little, then you'll never know it all. You can't, couldn't possibly. Mm-hmm. But that's the, that's the currency. Uh, the most important thing you have to trade in is your knowledge, I think. Wow. That is profound. Cause really, I mean, you think you get to the end of right the skill or the trade and you think you've learned all about it. And then somebody turns another leaf over and you're like, Oh, I had no idea that these were connected. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people collect whatever they collect is for that, that learning and the storytelling that items do on their own, whether yes. you know the real personal story or not, when you learn about its history, you go, Oh my gosh, I couldn't even imagine being alive at that time or doing mm-hmm. this or yeah. you know, all of those mm-hmm. things. I think that's where the 
the desire in the, the, the community as a whole comes from, right? It's just wanting to perpetuate those stories with the item. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's amazing what you can tell about society at a time from a piece of jewelry mm-hmm. or, or a piece of furniture or whatever your curio of choice is. Mm-hmm. I always find because they're, they're kind of artistic and they're to do with, they reflect the artistic designs of the time, but they also reflect the economic yeah. factors of the yeah. time. So they actually tell you so much about a time. Like 1940s jewelry, for example, just to name one, right? It's really big. They, it, it's, it's gold jewelry that's like quite large mm-hmm. designs. It can be like, um, they can kind of be like bows or sort of geometric so mm-hmm. sort of like art deco but kind of moving away from that a little bit no platinum no platinum why and they think oh there's no platinum why is that because platinum is a catalyst in the production of gunpowder so oh. 1940s you mm-hmm. were not allowed yeah. to use platinum for anything else mm-hmm. than gunpowder um the jewelry was big but it was light it was light because gold was it so one of the big jewelry countries of the world france in France, you couldn't buy gold, yeah. right? They needed the gold to fund the war mm-hmm. effort. You could make jewelry, but you had to bring your own gold, and the state took 10%. Whoa. So the jewelry was light because if people had a lot of gold, they weren't going on. They didn't want to give 10% away of it, so they only used the minimum that they needed. Um, and, and then you look at the design of it. What was the design of it? It was feminine and big. And mm-hmm. the reason why is that because all the men were all fighting the war. Mm-hmm all the women were assuming roles that maybe they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, in the factories, you know, building all the tanks and God knows what, but they still wanted some sort of feminine design and they wanted it big because it was the only thing their clothes were not. So right. the, the jewelry was big and feminine and, um, but light gold. So it tells you so wow. much about the 1940s from that jewelry. So oh. that is, you know, I, when we started the show, I, you know, kind of had like my favorite places to dabble in history wise. And I've always loved the Victorian era, but as, as the show progresses and we learn more, I am definitely more fascinated with pre-World War II, post-World War II, just industry mm. in general, how much it touched every single industry from glassware to porcelain production, to jewelry, to clothing, to literally everything. It shifted mm-hmm. the way, the way everything was either used, bought, or sold. Yeah. And then we come out of it, and then it's like, you. then you see that, you know, that repetition. You have the 50s where it's like that idealistic, you know, mm-hmm. nuclear family. And then you have just yes. like the slingshot of the 60s and 70s, right? As everybody is moving. It's just, yeah, It every time we cover something that was big during that era, I'm always just surprised at the production differences in that span of you know six mm. or seven years mm-hmm. it's always yeah it's yeah it's it's six or seven years then whereas the same changes probably took like you know 40 or 50 mm-hmm. in, the, in the 18th century or something like that yeah. so yeah the progression of <laughs> yeah popularity um like i said matthew i have a million more questions to ask you we're gonna have to have you back because this was an absolute delight but before we go, and before we get into today's Estates I'll Walkthrough, where Ooh. can our listeners find you, whether in person or online? Well, in person, you can find me in, uh, I have a small shop in Powers Court Townhouse in Dublin, which is a beautiful um, 1770s 
townhouse. It's really spectacular. And we have a small shop there in the first floor. It's called Courtville. It's green. Can't miss it. Uh, well, you can miss it, actually, because it's quite small. But when, <laughs> once you know where it is, you won't miss it. Uh, yeah, and we're on. Uh, we, have our, our, we do a podcast called Gem Pursuit, um, which we talk a lot about jewellery and gemstones um, into our fifth season now. And uh, then we, have a t- we do TikTok and Instagram. Both are called Matthew.Weldon. Uh, there's an S on the Instagram name because Matthew.Weldon was gone. I don't know who has that actually. <laughs> um, and our website is www.courtville.ie and uh, all of our goods and stocks are up there. And we've a, we've a knowledge center there too as well. If you can click into it and have a click around mm-hmm. and see different articles about antique jewelry and, and gemstones. So yeah, it's but really, I would say, Sam and Jill, the pleasure was all mine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank well, you, Matthew. Thank it you. was, it really is an incredible and leading up to, you know, asking you to come on the show. I spent a lot of time on your TikTok and on your different outlets and the knowledge is incredible. So please, if you have time today or over the next little bit, we're coming into the holidays, please go do some research, look at some things, look a little deeper in the cases when you're at the thrift store or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. Kind of start to learn about what you're looking for, you know, because you may find another hidden treasure. Drew. And speaking of hidden treasures... It's now time for my Ooh. favorite part of the show. We had a great build up here. Matthew, we did, Jill. And now you're just gonna and Jill head gave us off. Matthew a hearty warning. As she I feel like I have, now. yeah, I have. I feel yeah. like I have to mm-hmm. give this warning every time because everybody's like, "Gosh, you guys are so nice," and then they do this. You do this to mm-hmm. them. You guys aren't here after the Zoom call ends. I know. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that. Um, and you know what's funny is every time I write the estate sale walkthrough up, it is completely made up. But 98% of the time, there is something in the estate sale walkthrough that came up in the conversation, but not in any of the research. And it's particularly (laughs) spot on today. So today's estate sale walkthrough is a little different. This is where it's like, we are at a jewelry store that is going out of business. Oh, I did not know that that is how you acquired Courtville. I had none none the wiser on that. <laughs> um, so, of course, they are trying to get rid of everything, right? And before they close up shop. The first item we're choosing between is an Art Deco platinum, emerald, and diamond target ring with diamond set shoulders or an Art Deco 18 karat gold cabochon sapphire and diamond cluster ring. It's our first two choices. Matthew? What what would I choose between? You can only choose one or the other. One or the other. Well, that is a toughie because I do like cabochon sapphires, but I think because they're so rare and they're so reproduced that the original ones are actually like hen's teeth. And I think when people think of Art Deco jewelry, they think of like sleek platinum more than they think of yellow gold and sapphire and mm-hmm. uh, i would go with the emerald target because if you actually find an art deco target ring you know with the diamond or calibre of emeralds an original one is such a desirable piece of jewelry look cool kind of looks like an eye looking at you sometimes mm-hmm. but um but those are so rare and so desirable um whereas yes cabochon sapphires are of course rare as well um, but I just think I would go with the Emerald Tiger ring. 
And I, of course, knew just every ounce of that information, which is exactly why I chose those two very specific and rare pieces of jewelry. Because my, yeah, I just, I know, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Sam, did you? Did you? No. As a a dealer, the one thing I would also say to you on that is that Art Art Deco jewelry is virtually always platinum. And the first thing I would check about that is, is that 18 karat gold piece actually uh, original Art Deco because... Uh, they're almost always patent. There is yellow gold pieces. And actually, Ooh. on the flip side, uh, that could make that a very rare piece if it is an authentic uh, Art Deco one. And um, there's a French jeweler called Fouquet, uh, of, of Alphonsus Fouquet, the father. And then there's uh, his son was also a jeweler, and they made a lot of Art Deco jewelry in 18 karat gold. And I actually have an 18 karat gold Cabochon emerald. Uh, by Fouquet, which is Art Deco, Whoa. and that's beautiful as well. So that was a really difficult one. Well, that was me. That it was gets worse. I know. I told uh, you. Also, there's your vintage tip of the week. So I that Art Deco was that. platinum. Oh, you say it. Yeah. Well, that, no, I can't see it oh, now. Oh, sorry. All right, next time. I can't be original on. I can it's only like do it he on could the have spot. wrote this too. Because he's true. you got the whole thing of like throwing in the interesting bits as the choices get harder. You go well. Actually, it's really. I know that's a good tip too. Um, I'm gonna pick the uh, target ring also because it looks like an eye. That's the whole reason I liked it. Oh no, I'm going the cabochon. Oh, I love stuff. Okay, and then we're gonna and test diamonds. it in the parking lot if it's platinum. Okay, okay, we're gonna look. We're gonna check. All right, next up, uh, the purchase choice is a little different. Is between some antique jeweler tools. Oh, do you choose the wonderful watchmaker's staking set? It's in a custom pedestal pedestal wood case with a beautiful glass cloche over the top. And all of the pieces Mm. are in there, all of the antique watchmaker's pieces. Or do you choose the antique watchmaker's lathe that is the brass lathes that you would see from that time with all of its implements with it? Would you choose the lathe or would you choose the pedestal case, Matthew? Mm, That's a tricky one too. (laughs) Uh, I think just because, and as you said there, the... (laughs) the watchmaker's case with all of the pieces in it would be so rare to get like everything intact and it's not missing like one and there's one empty slot and I think hmm, what was in there I think I would go with the first one because I know from buying old you know tools or sets of things mm-hmm. the the ones that are 90% right and 90% complete are only worth 50% of the ones that are 100% complete mm-hmm. That little extra bit, and to get one incomplete, com- complete like that would would be would be awesome. So uh, I don't make watches, but if I had to, that that is the one I would go for. I think. Yeah, I was like, if I if I had to pick between one of those, because I'm a sucker for like things in small, I know small places, right, with all their bits. But the lathe also looks really cool. It would just look really cool up on a shelf, right, to have a conversation about. That's the um, that's like what I'm going between. <clears throat> what conversation do I want to start? Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with the pedestal mm. case. Oh. Just because I like a case. They're really cool. I got to have it in a... And as I always say in every estate I walk through, all of these items really do exist and are on the internet. Yes. And if I'm really loving one of the items, she mm-hmm. will send me the link. Yep, so I then know. I have to sit there for days on mm-hmm. end wondering if I'm going to buy it or You're not. You're welcome. I am going to go only because I really like the look of it is the watchmaker's lathe. I just think it's so beautiful and would look particularly up like, well, like during the holidays and different things oh, like that. See, I think it would look say stuff like that. Matthew's like, Googling. Oh. I see it. I, and as I said, as I said, every day is a school day. I'm actually looking up a mm-hmm. watchmaker's lathe. Mm-hmm. 
which is we also are... another reason I went for the first one because I didn't know what the second one was. So. <laughs> now you're like, hold on a minute. She does we are quite literally thing. the same person. I the will do that thing. during an interview. Somebody will say something. Like, I'm just going to look this up really quick because I have to know right now. Right now. <laughs> Did you find it? Oh, yeah. hold on. That's major lay. <laughs> Whoa, that's a piece of kit. Isn't that cool? Uh, <laughs> can, can I change my answer? You sure can. Absolutely. <laughs> we haven't left yet. Oh, I think the watch makes it late. It's very cool. Oh, it's really cool. Isn't that cool? <laughs> oh, Sorry. So cool. Sorry about that. There's like so many different pieces and compartments to it. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, I think you're right. For, well, if I for the shop, I put that on the table and just have it like mm-hmm. it would be such a talking point. Um, now the shop is 189 square feet, and there's four of us working there, mm-hmm. so I don't know where we put it, but it would it would definitely. Um, definitely be a showpiece for sure. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. Is everybody happy with their choices now? Sure, yeah. Yeah, Jill's (laughs) mad at me. All right. So the last one, of course, was a little selfishly written on my part because we couldn't be choosing all of these jewels without grabbing something from my favorite era, which is, of course, the Victorian era. The choices are, do you choose the complete Victorian Chatelaine or the gold snake bangle with emerald eyes oh that one's easy for me i want the snake i knew it matthew um well as i mentioned with the watch uh case and pedestal having a complete chatelaine would be pretty cool Mm -hmm. a lot of those pieces get taken off and you know so but there's nothing more victorian to me than a piece of serpent jewelry Mm -hmm. so like queen victoria she actually proposed to Prince Albert uh, because he was the he couldn't propose to um, uh, uh, to be monarch. So she actually proposed, and her engagement ring oh. was a diamond and emerald serpent mm-hmm. crossover ring, um, which has never been found, by the way. Um, I believe it's probably buried with her. I'd imagine. I'm not sure, yeah. but um, so a serpent bangle with an emerald emerald eyes Mm -hmm. yeah that would be for me because that is quintessential Mm -hmm. victorian she was engaged in 1837 and uh following that there was a whole trend towards these serpent jewelry and i we have a bit of a thing for serpent jewelry in the shop Mm. um like it's a very yeah oh we love it and the serpent as a motif is like really it's it's you won't you won't actually realize how many different places it is mm-hmm. like the world medical symbol is like a serpent coiled around mm-hmm. like a sword type mm-hmm. of thing so um like it's it's everywhere and it means a lot we kind of get a bad connotation about serpents like you know they bite you and they might kill you or whatever mm-hmm. um but in a lot of cultures like the romans and the greeks thought that serpents represented like you know immortality and because of their there's a lot of imagery of serpents like eating their own tail and that's like you know the circle mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. um so i would definitely go with serpent angle for sure i have to go with the chatelaine because it's just like i love first of all tiny things like things with a purpose i like that it was like the victorian swiss army knife for a lady <laughs> happy happy yeah. to have that and yeah because i yeah i just have, i'm obsessed with things that are no longer like a part of popular demand well i don't Mm. think that i've uh i've personally done that well on an estates i'll walk through right up in a a minute so thank you that was (laughs) enjoyable for me to be like hitting each one uh yeah also thank you so much for sitting down with us today and great 
Um, I, I hope to one day, of course, make it over there and see your shop in person. If you ever in Idaho, holler at us and we'll be sure to wave at you from the freeway or something. And <laughs> be like, hey, Matthew, over here. There's opals. Um, thank you so much. This was an absolute delight. I'm so glad we were able to sit down together. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure, ladies. Thank you very much for having me on. And um, if I ever do go to Idaho, I'll definitely <laughs> let you know. And you'll probably find me in the opal pit looking for opals. That's we'll come with you. Yeah. yeah, we'll show um, you how to get there. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Go. And if you do come to Ireland, definitely uh, let us know in advance. And we can we can definitely visit the shop and, and say hello. And you can uh, we can try on all the Victorian jewelry that you want. Oh, so yes. that would be. Uh, I'll pass out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing I am uh-huh. certified to resuscitate you. I also really like beer. So we'll be perfect in Ireland. We'll be top notch. Oh, you have to like Guinness. That's the Oh I'm yeah. Over here. yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah, we got it. We got you. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And I it was just an absolute treat. I love this. I'm glad we have this. Yeah, me too. In our repertoire. So thank you. To hear Not at all. Yes, it was wonderful. To hear even more about the items we talk about today in Matthew's episode, stick around for this week's Curio Corner. I when I when we first came across Matthew, like I say in the interview, it was of course sent via my favorite application, TikTok. Yeah, and I saw his stuff, and I was like, "Oh my god!" He, there's so many amazing and like timeless pieces inside of that jewelry store. Mm-hmm. That I, w- I couldn't wait, and then he was so charming. We spent the first thirty minutes of this. Oh interview. my gosh, he was delightful. Seriously, absolutely delightful. And it was the. The hour that we record went by so quickly that I was like, I feel like we didn't get to anything we wanted to get to. I I don't know. It was so great. It was so great. Yeah. He was one of those people where we sit down and it feels like we already know him. Mm -hmm. Because we started out talking about Idaho. And he had talked about how he just read an article Mm -hmm. about Idaho, about the wolves. (laughs) Jill and I both like... Sat up a little straighter and kind of clutched our pearls. Like, oh, what did you read? You're like, wait a minute, shit. We made the we made the news. Fuck, because it's been a little rocky here in the gem yeah. state. Just, just a tiny bit. Yeah. But then he was just like, oh, just talking about wolves, and I was like, oh yeah, those old things. Yeah, that thing, that that's old stuff. Old news. <laughs> that happens every day. Every day, and we actually we recorded this interview a little while ago. Um, in preparation to go to Los Angeles. And this is the first time you and I have sat down to record a Curio Corner in a minute. And it was yeah. a little touch and go for a minute. All of the stuff was still kind of packed up. Um, so yeah, having to get stuff out and about. And then my child came down and raided my recording studio candy. Oh, mm-hmm. no. As one does. Yeah, he wanted some of my Scandinavian swimmers, the sour ones. Oh, man. You know what? I don't blame him. No, speaking of candy, sidebar, two seconds. I had a candy this week that changed my life. Okay. Jill, perfect texture. Crunchy, melts in your mouth, lots of crunch. Oh. Okay. Oh. It was freeze-dried Jolly Ranchers. Really? Saying it, my mouth is doing that sour <laughs> candy water that you get and like your jaw hurts a little bit. I was, um, I had taken Spelltrack back to her house and she lives on the opposite side of town. And I was coming back home and needed to stop at the gas station. And I walked in. And where we live, there is like freeze-dried shit everywhere. All right? Everywhere. It's a big thing. 
And it's a something to do with like food storage and stuff like that. Not something to do. It is to do with food storage. But then there's people that buy these that then just freeze dry the shit out of every candy thing they see. And so I walked in and I saw and it was on the package labeled Jolly Puffers, which there's so many other names they could have come up with that are synonymous <laughs> with rancher. Jolly Cowboys. Jolly. <laughs> and literally anything else. It's a puffers. So I look at the clerk who, by the way, this was on Halloween and she's dressed like a scarecrow at the gas station. I said, are these supposed to be like Jolly Rancher? She goes, yeah, they're really good. And I was like, okay. So I bought a bag and they were like $8 for this bag. Holy shit. Right. Commitment. I was like, you better work, bitch. So <laughs> I get in the car, I rip them open, and I put one in my mouth, and it was like the heavens opened. <laughs> it's the perfect taste of Jolly Rancher in this weightless, like, fluffy. i just been thinking about them all week. <laughs> I know, I your thinking. face right now. <laughs> I just had to share that with everybody. Anyways, back to the episode, <laughs> Curio Corner. They're on, you can find them online. All right. Just... Go go out and get some, guys. If anybody have- locally listening has a freeze dryer, I'll pay you in mothball stickers <laughs> and a key fob or money, real money. I know. Anyways, it was just, I just want everybody to experience it. Everybody. I had freeze dried Skittles. Eh. I that was a weird Yeah, I didn't really care for those. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like that. I like peach rings. They're good. Except for they get gummy again in your mouth, which was upsetting. I didn't expect that. I didn't know they've made freeze-dried. They literally, do you want me to look up? Hold on. No, I mean, I believe you. There was the the one that I want to try that I saw after <laughs> the freeze-dried Jolly Puffers was, you know, the nerd ropes, right? That we had. Oh, yeah, up? yeah. That you can get like the cut up ones that are like segments. Uh-huh. They had those freeze-dried. Mm. And I was like, I bet that doesn't suck. Ooh, I bet that tastes nice. Yeah. I bet that texture is really good on that. Super crunch, right? Yeah. Crunch level six out of ten. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Anyways, that's where my mind's been. I, my kid's been sick all week, so I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone. Oh, one candy that is disgusting, um, thanks to my daughter. She made the little uh, sushi gummies that we bought oh, in Tokyo. Uh-huh. Cookins. <laughs> She made it and she's like, this is so cute. And I was like, all right, try it. And she popped it in her mouth and she immediately goes, oh, <laughs> and I was like, spit it out. She's like, uh, uh. what is it? Was it like, <laughs> she said like the, it was like, I don't know. She said it was like super squishy, weird. Oh, squishy. and she's like, it, the taste was just like, she couldn't even describe it. Oh, I gotta have to do that. Yeah. We should have you on <laughs> just for the texture expert. I know. Well, after her experience, I was like, "Ooh, I don't, I don't think I want to try that." Oh, come on, live a little. No, I liked squishy <laughs> foods. Just don't feel right. I I still have to make mine. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, it's so special, and I just keep looking at it in my pantry. Hi. I know. Isley could not wait <laughs> to do it, and Aiden's just like, I don't even care. Aiden, come on. Come on. I know. Come on. Live a little. Live a little. I'm glad they, they tried it. Yeah, no, they were super excited for all the candy I brought. I love it. My child could care less. No. Except yeah. for like the high chews and then my Trader Joe's candy, which I don't share, really. I try not to because we don't live close to a Trader Joe's. Yeah, that you have to like you have to send a covered wagon. Yeah. To get more supplies. <laughs> How has your week been since we've been uh, oh my God, I've been friggin' busy. Yeah. Yeah. We're, um, 
we're in November, so we're now in the like middle of the race for the deductible dash. Yes. And so I just tired. Did your stuff show up today? Oh no. Never showed up. Oh so I text my um I was waiting for um needles, if anybody's wondering. (laughs) And I stayed behind because one of my coworkers had to leave and I was like, I'll just stay, I'll stay a little longer. I'm sure they'll show up. No, mm-hmm. they never showed up. So I texted my supervisor and I'm like, yeah, so that stuff never showed up. Oh, no. And she was like, I'm going to kill him. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I'm going home now. So you're like, I'm not waiting any longer. They're going to have to be here at 630 on Monday. Yeah. So hopefully they show up Monday morning. I hope so. I do too. I hope they come dressed as a cargo ship. I do. <laughs> like, Sorry. <laughs> I, got stuck I know. After we saw all those cargo ships, I was like, oh, there's where half of the supplies I need is mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm. And I just go through it, guys. I'll just find what I need. Yeah. Hop on a jet so, ski. Get yeah. out there. I'll just, I'll just go get it. Yeah. Fine. There you go. Jill's solving the world's problems right here. You heard I it know, here I'm first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, we did not cover any, like... Outside of what Matthew enlightened us with. No, he was like all sorts of knowledgeable. Yeah. Which was nice. There was a couple things that we stemmed him on. On him like not knowing exactly what it was. And one of those things was the watchmaker's lathe. So this article comes from levinlathe.com. And we are speaking about the watchmaker's lathe that I always try to look up different things especially for experts that are a little more obscure outside of what they may have in their collection already yeah you were really struggling with this one but you totally stumped him i did i felt really i always feels like a win because if you guys could like there was like a bird's eye view of me writing these just (laughs) furious googling of like trying to figure out something that falls in the parameters of what they collect so um, this is the history behind why watchmaker lathes were important and how they got their start. Um, in 1939, Louis Levin presented a paper entitled Practical Benchwork at a meeting of Horological Institute of America, which horologists are like watchmakers and clockmakers. We Googled that. So you didn't have to. Um, at the National Academy of Science Building in Washington, D.C. By this time, Louis and Samuel Levin had learned a great deal about how to design and manufacture a great many of tools needed for repairing watches and other small precision instruments and devices. Now, this is not to say that this was the invention, like the first time something like this was ever used, but this is just the notable account of it being used. Um, they were already manufacturing and selling some small tools for horologists and contemplating uh, the manufacture of others in June of 1939 in uh, the 1939 issue of horology included the following photographs of a horologist lathe. This lathe consisted of a cone bearing headstock fitted with a lever collet closer. Just pretend like, you know what we're talking about a double tool cross slide and a six position self indexing turret attachment. I'm sure I could have my husband explain these things, but just roll with it. <laughs> The lathe had a 12-inch bed length. So this is a very small lathe to begin with, right? Most tabletop bench lathes are massive, four feet to even bigger than that. But this was meant to sit on top of a jeweler's bench. 
In July, they published a photograph of this horologist lathe equipped with a screw cutting attachment and a picture of a similar lathe equipped with a spiral milling attachment. For the next several years, horology continued to publish well-illustrated articles describing how to design and manufacture and use a wide variety of horologist tools and lathe accessories. By June of 1940, horology was warning about the possible consequences of a German invasion of Switzerland and the need for horologists to be prepared to make parts which were previously imported from Switzerland, which is so interesting. We cover a lot of ground in what happened during like World War II in the vintage world, but this uh-huh. is one of those things you just really don't think about. Um, in that editorial, Samuel Levin said, while horologists can, if necessary, make a great many of the replacement parts ordinarily used, they cannot make such things as mainsprings or jewels, and a shortage of these items would be felt seriously. World War II did indeed produce shortages of the tools used by horologists and instrument makers as the nation expanded its military and industrial capacity. Horologists and instrument makers now recognize the possibilities of productivity using the tools of both trades. Watches and a host of different instruments shared common types of parts and similar mechanisms, but they also shared one absolutely indispensable item, the sapphire jewel bearing, a product whose primary source was then in Switzerland. The means of manufacturing sapphire jewel bearings had always been veiled in secrecy and the United States government determined that it would establish five factories spread throughout the U.S. to produce such bearings in quality and quantities that might be required if supplies from Switzerland were cut off by Nazi Germany. Isn't that wild? Hmm. That is crazy. World War II increased the need for watchmakers, lays, and tools, and since most such tools had been manufactured in Europe, the supply of such tools had now been severely curtailed. This gave Louis Levin and Son Incorporated the opportunity to begin producing a line of watchmakers, lathes, and tools, which we cover. There's two different types of watchmakers instruments we cover yeah. in the estates I'll walk through. Um, so yeah, that was their kind of like this first commercial lathes that were produced were World War style machines with a 50 millimeter set center height, a 12 inch bed length, and a collet um, holding push type tailstock. The headstocks were available with either bronze or hard steel cone bearings. They were produced during a time of material shortages and were not as well made as they could have been if the preferred materials were available. However, by 1948, the factory was producing a full line of tooling for their lathes, including a full line of split collets and a variety of hand tools. Um, they expanded their production line of lathes and hand tools. And during the war years, the government either directly or indirectly purchased virtually all of the tools the factory could produce. And for years to come, these fine tools were in great demand by horologists throughout the world because of their quality and precision. They became the standard against which such products were judged after world war II, lathe and tool production increased. And by 1956, the list of products being manufactured and stocked included more than 300 different items all related to the manufacturing assembly of small watch size precision parts. But by this time, it was evident that the demand by horologists for those tools would certainly diminish due to technological changes in the watchmaking industry. As watches became less expensive and their mechanisms became less mechanical and more electronical, the need for most of the products then being manufactured by Louis and Levin and Son would evaporate except for a few horologists able to find work repairing very expensive old watches. 
However, the same wave of technological chain was also creating an increasing industrial demand for the tools needed to handle smaller and smaller parts. We see you, smartphones. Mm -hmm. The Levin saw what appeared to be an increasing need to produce very small parts in an expanding market for the type of tools made by Louis Levin and Son. The company began to alter their machine designs and improve performance accuracy of its machines and tools. These changes were required to accommodate the new industrial requirements. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. Yeah. So that is the kind of the American side of those watchmaker lays and what they were used for. So they would, that's how they would turn the little screws and pins and different mechanisms that wound, like held the gears and moved the watch. Yeah. When you showed a picture of it, I was just like, Ooh. Yeah. And they're not large at all. <clears throat> no. And I just feel people's eyesight just got like, Blurrier mm -hmm. and blurrier as they're, they're going to have those little tiny jeweler's glasses. Yeah. But yeah, so there's, of course, there were ones that were made in Switzerland and Germany and those different parts right. of the world um, that are antique, but what a cool little thing. Yeah. Well, another little cool thing we talked about. So we all know about Brunfield here in the States. Well, Italy has their own form of Brunfield. <clears throat> and it's called the Parma Italian Antique Market. And he talked about, that was the one he talked about that he, they, <laughs> so crazy. They went for a little jaunt. <laughs> I just gonna fly over to Italy. Yeah. They just flew over to Italy for fun. And then they looked and then they realized there was like, what, two or three more floors of yeah. this thing. Yeah. They thought they had made their, their whole way through it all. And then yeah. realized that they didn't pack enough lunches. And then they, they were like, no, you just like did an eighth of it. <laughs> and so I got this article off of modernmag.com. It says London may have Portobello Road, Paris, it's Marche à Pousse, but mercantile in theory, a lesser known antique market offers equally beguiling treasures frequented by tastemakers from anthropology to Blackman Cruise, the biannual event, Italy's largest antique fair, is held in Parma, the charming city in the heart of Emilia Romagnana district, about 72 miles south of Milan. The fair organizers are quick to note that it's not a flea market, but an antique fair. However, the distinction, it's a distinction without a difference. Most of the rough, so this is what I was just like, huh, I don't think we will ever be able to go all the way. Oh. Most of the roughly 1,000, that's right, guys, 1,000 uh. exhibits have booths that are, to put it mildly, electric, and the fun is the market's finds. One booth filled with an array of undistinguished brown furniture and accessories had Philippe Stark's famous clipboard Jim Nature TV set designed for Thomas in 1994, which he had taken for his own home. He still, it still works, he promised. The price was around $405. Jeez. Antique fair, guys. Antique fair. Not a flea market. I take Not offense a flea market. to that. I know. I got a problem with that. The exhibitor display their wares over almost 500,000 square feet in the city's fairgrounds. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. 
They're fairgrounds. Here in eastern Idaho, it's like. It's not that. It's not. It's maybe what? I don't even know. Oh, look. Small. Okay. The category of products are almost endless. 17th and 18th century antiques, mostly Italian, that include tables topped with colorful pitra dura designs or relics that hold the remains of long deceased saints. And if you're looking for ancestral portraits, this is definitely a place to come. Chandeliers are also in ample supply. Fashionistas will love the section devoted to vintage clothing and jewelry filled with brand names like Chanel, Prada, and Hermes. Vintage Vuitton bags, trunks, and luggages are scattered throughout the fairgrounds. If Rolex watches is your heart's desire, an entire aisle are filled with them. Yes, an aisle. Oh, my God. No wonder he was just like, jewelry, let's look around. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's like all this other stuff. Wow. In addition to the show, an entire pavilion is dedicated to vintage cars. Whoa. Yeah. Um, seems impossible. I know. So, and it, it like varies from Fiat's to old Vespa's to Alfa Romano's and then... There's a section, just the motorbikes. Wow. And it just goes on. Like it just like there literally is something for everybody in this antique market, but it also gives prices too. So it's like, Oh, I don't know if we can really go to this. So it says six lay art chairs by Charlotte Heron sported a price tag of around $4,870. Oh, that's, that's yeah. expensive. That's a, that's a little out of my price that's range. That's the place you go when you're spending somebody else's money. Yes. Like definitely. as an interior designer. Yeah. But it just goes on and it just like lists everything. And there's assortment of everything from vintage radios, telephones, cameras, children's cars, and fire trucks. Wide range of tableware from English silver plate to Richard Genori cups and saucers, um, baker slicer equipment, paper thin pieces. Like then they have like a little section that's just food. Oh, and I, I just go to that section. <laughs> but yeah, there's like yeah, it just is like it would be one of those places fun to go see, like just to see it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have it biannually, that's impressive that's a big well so for instance so i looked up the square footage for the flake fairgrounds here and they only have listed the indoor storage so all of the like i don't even know if it's all of the buildings but it says it has indoor storage of a hundred thousand square feet so i mean it must be the fairgrounds have to be close to if you were to think of the fairgrounds as maybe just flat like open plain instead of all of the open space and i'm sure it'd be comparable to I don't know. I don't have a frame reference for a hundred feet, let alone 500,000 of them. I know I can't. Yeah. When the GPS is like 70 feet turning and I'm like, well, how far is that? What is that? An inch set? What do you want from me? <laughs> what do you want? Um, I really enjoyed sitting down. I love sitting down with every guest we have, but I love when we sit down with somebody that like specializes in one thing like this. And yeah. the fact that it goes back so many generations for his family. Yeah. That was like, mind-blowing it was incredible um the places to check out matthew online are on instagram it is uh matthew.weldens and on tiktok 
It's Matthew.Weldon. And his website is www.courtville.ie. And of course, we will have all of that listed on the website, themothballprophecies.com. We would really love it if you would go rate and review the show wherever you listen. Rating and reviewing the show puts us up on the radar a little bit more to get featured and to get more appreciation from the overlords at the podcast distribution companies. So if you could go leave us a review, we would be eternally grateful. Let us know if you love the show. Right now, we would like to thank our beloved patrons. Uh, because of you guys, we were able to travel this year. We were able to take care of some big changes here at the show behind the scenes. And mm-hmm. of course, pay our beloved behind the scenes caretakers. As I'm calling them caretakers because really they're the ones that put the show together. <laughs> I mean, really, without really. them, we'd be nothing. Right now, we would like to thank Katrina and Erica in Arizona. Gray in Colorado. Emily and Crystal in Nevada. Ruth in British Columbia. Ruby and Autumn in Ohio. Aaron in Wisconsin. Melissa and RJ in Florida. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Kelly, Javier, Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California. And of course, Betty, Lisa, Aaron, T.C. Lionel, Melissa, Christina, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. A gigantic thank you to our wonderful team and caretakers and uh, shepherds behind the scenes. <laughs> Gray for making us sound like we know what we're doing. And for Spellcheck for helping us to look good on paper. All the time. As always, I hope you find some good shit. And I really hope you're remembering to look under those tables. You better. Bye. See ya.